Wow. So, hello, my name is Tracy. Good morning. And the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 123, a pilgrimage song. I raise my eyes to you, you who rule heaven. Just as the eyes of servants attend to their master's hand, just as the eyes of a female servant attend to her mistress's hand, that's how our eyes attend to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy because we've had more than enough shame. We've had more than enough mockery from the self-confident, more than enough shame from the proud. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Jill. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. Likewise, you know how we treated each of you like a father treats his own children. We appealed to you, encouraged you, and pleaded with you to live lives worthy of the God who is calling you into his own kingdom and glory. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Dan. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 9, 27 through 29. As Jesus departed, two blind men followed him, crying out, Show us mercy, son of David. When he came into the house, the blind men approached him. Jesus said to them, Do you believe I can do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then Jesus touched their eyes and said, It will happen for you just as you have believed. The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we long to hear your voice. We need to hear your voice. We need your word, your encouragement, your guidance, your instruction in our lives. That we might know the path that leads to life and have the strength to walk in it. And so would you help us today? By, this, by your spirit who you have generously poured out on us, speak to us, strengthen us, and help us today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, good morning. You may be seated. Once again, happy Father's Day to everyone celebrating today. Happy Juneteenth tomorrow as we celebrate uh, that holiday. If you're visiting with us today, we want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first, second, third time here, if there's anything that we can do to help answer any questions that you have about New Life Downtown or to help you to integrate into the life of the community here, please let me know. I uh, want to say a special thanks to everyone who spent last week at Royal Family Kids Camp. Uh, just started hearing some of the stories coming in from that time. So thank you for serving. We're praying for you as you uh, rest and recover. And thank you to our team that just came back from Guatemala. Uh, we got back yesterday afternoon from... Uh, spending seven days there. Uh, I was there with my daughter, Cora. Pastor Jay was leading the team. There were 12 of us uh, down there for uh, a week working at an organization called DAR. It's uh, a school and really community development.
development ministry in a city called Reu uh, in Guatemala. Uh, just an incredible time there. You'll get to hear more about it here in the next couple of weeks uh, as we gather together pictures and stories and those things to be able to come uh, and share with you. We had a phenomenal, phenomenal trip. I want to say a special thanks to Pastor Evan for preaching last week. Um, thank you, man. So appreciate you. Uh, as a kid uh, in my household, I always thought that mercy was a bad word. We had a lot of other words we just said all the time that we didn't really consider to be bad words. But mercy, for me, had a negative connotation to it. Because to uh, mercy meant defeat. Mercy meant that you had lost. Mercy was what you cried out in order to get the pain to stop. As you know, you're sort of held in an arm bar and just say, yell mercy and it will end. Or mercy was what umpires called uh, when you were so far behind that there was no hope of coming back in the game. I might have liked the word if I was uh, more frequently on the other side of that. <laughs> you know, I, I may have thought, oh, this isn't such a bad word. But for me, having two older brothers, I was the one crying mercy uh, and being on um, less than um, prolific sports teams. Um, I was on the, uh, you know, normally on the losing side of the mercy rule uh, in those places. So I might have thought differently, uh, but in my mind, mercy was one of those words that meant defeat. It was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of failure. It was a source of shame. It's been one of the many words that I've found uh, that Jesus has redeemed over the course of time. That in the journey with Jesus, we find that even our understanding of language, our use of words, and the ideas that we connect with words can be healed and changed and transformed by him. This is one of the great hopes, even on a day like Father's Day, that if that is a word that is difficult for you, that the very presence of God as Father will begin to redeem and restore a word that's been hard. In the same way that he does for so many things in our lives, even our language is something that he redeems in us. Some, uh, we're in the middle of a summer series uh, that we started just a couple of weeks ago through the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134 are a collection of songs that are tied together through a shared heading and through a shared superscription that you'll see in your Bibles. It'll normally say something like the Songs of Ascent or in the case of the version that we use here in service, pilgrimage songs. The original language, it's the songs of the going up. It's the songs that accompany us as we're going up. Most scholars believe that Israel sang these songs as they made their way up to Jerusalem. For wherever they were in the country, they made their way up to Jerusalem for three annual pilgrimage feasts where the entire community came together to celebrate what God had done to worship him together, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Three times the community would gather together, and as they walked, as they ascended up the Judean hills, they would sing these songs, these pilgrim songs, these songs of ascent, which means that Jesus also sang these songs as he accompanied his family and later his disciples along these same roads. He prayed these prayers that were set to music 
music and then sung by the psalmist and by pilgrims and by those gathered and by the people of God throughout space and time. The collection has also sort of come together to become a metaphor about our life with God. To see the songs of ascent as a metaphor for an upward movement toward God. A journey from whatever depths and valleys we find ourselves in up to the very presence of God. This approach of thinking about the collection that way was popularized about 40 years ago by Eugene Peterson in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Talking about discipleship in an instant society. It's the book I've recommended for the summer if you've never read it before. Or maybe you've read it in the past to pull it back out and to read through his work again alongside these psalms to take Psalm 130 through or 120 through 134 and just to read them, to meditate on them, to pray on them. Most of them, like Psalm 123, are very short. We're going to be jumping around a little bit on Sunday mornings, but today, Psalm 123 that begins this way I raise my eyes or I lift my eyes to you, you who rule or who sit or who dwells or who reigns in heaven. Just like we saw in Psalm 120, the word order in the original language is different from this. Rather than beginning with I raise my eyes, the original language begins with to you. The focus or the attention of the psalm and the psalmist is on God. God is the goal of the pilgrimage. God is the recipient of the prayer. God is the focus of the attention. God is the very object of affection and desire for the psalmist, for the pilgrim, for us. What the psalm teaches us to do is to lift our eyes to you, To you, God, I raise, I lift my eyes. To the one who is seated in heaven, to the one who dwells there, to the one who reigns there, we're called to look above and beyond Jerusalem, above and beyond the temple, above and beyond whatever is going on in our lives, to the very throne and to the God who sits on the throne, who lives and reigns and rules over all. The initial invitation of the psalm is to lift one's eyes up to the king and to his inbreaking kingdom. But the implication of that is, is that our eyes are not always lifted up. That our eyes are somewhere else so often. And for many of us, we actually live with our eyes and our heads down. The very idea that our eyes need to be lifted up imply that the author of the psalm, the traveler on his or her way to Jerusalem, and every single one of us often find our eyes downcast. Downcast or focused or overwhelmed with something else in our lives. For the writer of the psalm, his eyes are actually on others, on their opinions of him, and on their treatment of him and his community. Speaking on the whole community's behalf, he goes on to say in verse three, we've had more than enough shame. We've had more than enough mockery from the self-confident, more than enough shame from the proud. For the psalmist, the original thing that they see where his eyes are drawn to what is at the center of his focus or attention is the contempt that he experiences from other people from the very feeling or experience of being despised. 
The psalmist knows what it means to be mocked by those who seem to live life carefree or comfortable or proud. He knows what it's like to be, to be on the other side of life, on the underside of it, and to be put there by those around him and to experience a kind of deep pain and shame and injustice and difficulty that comes from the very actions and treatments of other people. This is where the psalmist finds himself in the original language. He says, I'm there a lot. It's been a lot of this, a lot of contempt, a lot of feeling despised, enough to be satiated with it, to be full and to say, I've had enough. What's really interesting, though, is the psalmist doesn't name any names. It's actually one of the things I appreciate so much about the psalms is that the psalm doesn't go through and you know, start listing out the names of the people who have done this um, to the psalmist and to his community. Instead, leaves it a little bit open-ended, which is one of the beauties that we find in the psalm that we can actually make these our prayers as well. Because the people are named instead, we can look at our own lives and say, actually, where have I experienced this before? Where have I experienced feeling that my life has been put under something by someone else? Where have I experienced shame or contempt or being mocked or despised? And usually we don't have to think very long to be able to come up, oh, yeah, 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 I know. I know the times that I've experienced that. Maybe it was, you know, a bully in school. Maybe it was something that happened with a boss. Maybe it was something that happened with a landlord. Maybe something in your life where you found yourself on the underside of power and the way that power was being used by the person that was supposed to be for your good instead was used for your evil and you found that you were mocked and despised and marginalized and pushed around in some way and even publicly shamed, mocked, discouraged. For some of us, that actually even happened in our families of origin. But the very source of those things for us, the first place that we go is, oh yeah, I know that feeling. And where I experienced it was I experienced it from my dad. Or I experienced it from someone that was close to me that was supposed to be on my side, but instead I found my experience of them was that they were against me. For many of us, that is our fathers. It's a source of pain on this day. For others, we look at this and you're like, actually, when I think about the shame that I feel or experience in my own life, the source of that is myself. That many times I ended up on the underside of life because of my own foolishness, my own decisions, my own things that I did, the places that I was unwise, the place that I drifted or the, the ways that I walked away from when I knew what was good or godly for me or for others. And I, I've been the source of that in my life or in other people's lives. Sometimes for us as dads, um, one of the things, maybe even we're in a place where it's like, yes, my, my kids are here and things are relatively great and we carry around shame and regret and things like, oh, I, I could have or I should have or I wish I would have. Sometimes we experience that when our kids are still in the home and sometimes out of the home and we're going, ah, oh, I just, I wish I would have. I wish I could have. I wish I would have done this differently or that differently. And they can be our own sources from some of the most intimate relationships in our lives. And the truth is, it's really hard for us to see above and beyond whatever pain or shame that we've experienced in life. 
the most readily available thing to our own focus, the very attention of our own hearts, the very things that we think about first, most often in our own lives, or the pain that we've experienced from others, or the shame that we have developed in our own lives from our own actions. And we find that our eyes are so easily downcast. And this is actually all that we can see. And what can happen in those moments is that we can believe that this is all that there is. That we're just stuck here. (laughs) That this is what life is. This is my lot in life. And there is really no way out of it. This is who I am. This is what I deserve. And there is no way to change. Those are common scripts that we end up living with in life. And breaking out of that can be so incredibly difficult. And we can think that it's really all on us to be able to work our way out of that muck and that mire. And that there's some sort of, you know, strategy that if we could just adopt this or do this or kind of figure this out, we'll be able to work our way out of it in order to find actually we can't. Instead, we need help from the outside. And that help is what we call faith. It's being able to look beyond ourselves to God himself and saying, God, would you help us? And most often it's less of a leap of faith and more of a look of faith. Just the simple action of looking up above and beyond our circumstances to the God who may be able to do something about it. The pilgrimage of faith actually begins with lifting our eyes to God. This is where our pilgrimage of faith begins is the willingness or maybe the risk of looking up and above and beyond where we find ourselves. Or maybe, if we're really honest, the grace to look up and above and beyond. Something we don't find in ourselves, but somehow God comes alongside of us and lifts our chin and helps us to see up and above and beyond the very possibility of help from God, the willingness, the possibility, the risk, really the gift of grace to look, to lift our eyes, to shift our focus from ourselves and our circumstances to the very transcendent king of the universe. But looking up also implies that we're in a particular relationship with God. That there is a particular relationship between us and God. If we are looking up at him, it places us in a position of need. In a position of dependence. In a position of humility. In a recognition of our limits. Of our inferiority. Of our lack in God's abundance. The psalmist picks up on this in verse 2. It says, Just as the eyes of servants attend to their master's hand, just as the eyes of a female servant attend to the mistress's hand, that's how our eyes attend to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. The psalmist calls us to relate to God as a servant to a master, which we are personally very uncomfortable with that imagery. We're like the 19th century English poet. We long to be the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own souls. Like, no, I don't want to be in that place. We have a cultural bias against service, against servanthood, unless we're talking about being a servant leader because then we maintain a position of power in the whole situation. Then it's like, oh, yes, I'm a servant leader. I like that word now. 
But the rest of the time that we don't like it, there's something about us that's like, no, I, I want to just do it myself. That's why we have such a hard time asking for help, even in simple things. And then we have the most larger and more significant reason to feel uncomfortable with that appeal. That we hear this and immediately we're like, wait, this is servant and master imagery, which reminds us of our dark history in our country with slavery. We find those images throughout the scriptures and we're like, oh, I just don't know what to do with this. In the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman world, slavery was legal and it was widespread. It was a pre-existing, culturally accepted and practiced condition that we find in the scriptures. Generally, it happened because of economic crisis where someone found themselves into significant debt and then, you know, was, became an economic slave to someone for a period of time until that debt could be paid off or as a result of war. Rarely was it racially or ethnically motivated like we experienced so many times in our history and in the world. The exception to that may be Israel's slavery in Egypt. The Old Testament, as we look at those scriptures, permitted this kind of economic and war captive slavery on a very, very limited and restricted basis, which also required the emancipation of slaves every seven years with full provisions to go and live a full and abundant life. And the prophets imagined that coming to an end. Jesus even declared that he came to set captives free the New Testament consistently undermines that system over and over and over again. Rowan Williams, the great Anglican scholar, said that Judaism and Christianity lit a long fuse that eventually explodes in the abolishment of these practices and the continual ongoing work of coming against all forms of slavery in our world today because it has not gone away. There's still repercussions of it in our society and in our world. And we have to recognize that for generations, the Bible was horribly misused to justify all kinds of practices. We have to name that. We're like, this is hard for us to think of this kind of image. A part of that long wick that Rowan was talking about was Israel's own self-understanding. They had been slaves in Egypt. This was their identity. They remembered that they had been slaves and that they had been rescued they had been redeemed, they had been set free, and they'd been brought into covenant with their God. And when they were rescued and called into this new covenant community, servanthood was one of the ways that their relationship with God was depicted. Like, wait a minute, why, if they'd been rescued from that idea, why would they recapture that image in a new way with God? I think maybe because like Bob Dylan said, you gotta serve somebody. The question is just who and how and for what reason and what purpose? Who are we going to give our lives to? Who are we going to serve? What are we going to serve? And to what ends are we going to do that? And the way that the psalmist picks up on this image was recognizing that servants learn to attend, to focus, to study, to know, to fix their eyes on their masters and our call as the people of God is to attend, to focus, to study, to know, to fix our eyes on the very master of our souls. 
to fix our eyes on the God who rescued us and called us into a unique kind of relationship with him. See, if our pilgrimage begins with lifting our eyes to God, then our, per, our pilgrimage is furthered, our walk in faith is furthered by learning to fix our eyes on God, to fix and to attend to behold and to adore and to learn and to study and to know that there's something fundamentally different about this relationship. Yes, God is sovereign and supreme. Yes, we are inferior and dependent on him completely. And yet what we find is something very different than what we expect in that relationship. And so all of a sudden, even the relationship around servanthood and slavery gets changed by who the master is, by recognizing the call into faith in Christ and to give our lives to the God who's given his life to us. This is the only way forward in faith, is to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face until the things of the earth go strangely dim, but to see and to behold him. But this is incredibly difficult for us we live in a distracted and overcommitted and fast-paced society. It is difficult to be truly and fully present to anything. <laughs> it's difficult to be truly and fully present to ourselves, to those that we love, much less to an invisible and elusive God. It's not natural. It's not easy. It has to be learned. There's a famous book by a guy named Brother Lawrence. It says the, the very title is The Practice of the Presence of God. This is something that we practice and learn and grow into. In our EH classes, we talk about the fundamental principle of emotionally healthy discipleship is slowing down for loving union with Jesus. That unless we learn to slow down and to fix our attentions on him, we won't find the way forward in faith. In our meal groups this fall, one of the resources that we're going to encourage our meal groups to go through, some new resources from John Mark Comer and his friends called Practicing the Way. And the whole premise is, what are the practices that help us to slow down to be with Jesus? How do we practice Sabbath? How do we fast? How do we pray? Then we might fix our eyes on the very master of our lives, the one who is our God, who calls us into relationship with him. And what's most startling, though, about this psalm is the psalmist's expectation of what will happen when he fixes his eyes and fixes his attention on God. He says, This, that's how our eyes attend to God, that very same way, until God has mercy on us. And then he cries out, Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy. The psalmist and the pilgrim, as, it's, as he or she is on their journey, is crying out for mercy and waiting and expecting to receive it. And immediately I heard that, uh, when I read those words, I go back to those places thinking, oh yeah, we have to ask God for mercy because we're trying to get him to cease his relentless attack on us. His onslaught of pain and all the difficulty that he's causing in our lives. Mercy, God, I give up. But that's not the psalmist's perspective. The psalmist's perspective here is asking God to rescue us from the evils of the world, the evils of other people, the foolishness of our own decisions, looking to God who didn't cause those things, but to the God who can actually bring us out of them, who can rescue us, who can help us, who can redeem us and restore us. And it's asking with the expectation that this is who God is and this is what God does. 
Our whole pilgrimage is a journey into mercy. That's what the pilgrimage of faith is. It's a journey into mercy. Into a God who identifies himself as the merciful one. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, mercy, God, mercy. The prayer is not an attempt to get God to do what he is otherwise or what he is un- unwillingly otherwise to do, but a reaching out to what we know that he does do. Amen. An expressed longing to receive what God is doing in us and for us in Jesus Christ. It's difficult to believe. This is who God is. He's a God of mercy. For many of us, when we cried out in various moments in our lives, we did not receive mercy. So it makes this day hard. So we cried out to our parents, to our dads, hoping to receive mercy, and we're met with shame or content or mockery instead. When we cried out, we encountered something other than what we needed. We encountered something different than the mercy of the scriptures. Because when we see God as a God of mercy, we're talking about a mercy that delivers, a mercy that strengthens, a mercy that heals, a mercy that restores, a mercy that revives, a mercy that lifts our chin, that helps us to perceive God in all of his glory and all of his goodness. Parents, if you're a parent today, a grandparent, a guardian, a foster care parent, particularly dads here in the room today, and really for all men in the church as all men are called to grow up to become spiritual dads in the house of God, whether or not we have biological or adopted or foster children of our own, we're all called to be spiritual dads. When your children, when young people in your lives, when children in your lives, when other people in your lives cry out to you, what do they expect to receive? when they ask you for help, when they cry out to you, when they come to you with the very difficult situations of their lives, what do they expect to receive? How do they expect to be treated? May we learn to respond in each of those moments the way that our God responds to us, to be people who deliver, who uh, hand out demonstrate mercy to all those who come to us in our lives in that way. First Thessalonians put it this way. It says, likewise, you know how we treated each of you. We treated you like a father treats his own children. How is that? We appealed to you. We encouraged you. And we pleaded with you to live a life worthy of the God who was calling you into his own kingdom and glory. This is what God does for us. He encourages us. He pleads with us. He, he comes alongside of us and helps us. He appeals to us and says, come, come, come. And he demonstrates and he shows us mercy and then calls us and shows us to become the very people who do this for others that they might imagine what our God is like. This is who we are called to become. But we cannot become what we do not behold. We cannot become what we do not Behold, to be merciful, we have to first receive mercy. To be merciful, we first must receive it from God. And the good news today is that the mercy of God is readily available to each and every single one of us. It's readily available. The psalmist and the pilgrim encourage us to lift our eyes up to God. 
to look beyond our shame, our guilt, our regrets, our pain, to God who sits on his throne, to fix our eyes in him, to cry out for mercy, and then expect to receive it, (laughs) to spend our whole lives journeying into it. As Evan and the worship team come forward today, we're reminded of what this looks like in our gospel reading. Matthew 9, 27, as Jesus departed, two blind men followed him, crying out, show us mercy, son of David. And when he came into the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to him, do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe that I can show you mercy? (laughs) Yes, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus said, then this shall be done for you. As we come to the table today, as we come to the table every Sunday, we're doing is we're crying out for mercy. We're crying out, Son of David, show us mercy. We come to the table every week because we believe that Jesus can show us mercy, that he will show us mercy, and that he does show us mercy. And only when we receive the mercy of God can we show the mercy of God to one another to those that we love, and particularly to those coming behind us who call us mom and dad, who call us spiritual mom and spiritual dad. But we cannot become what we do not behold. So once again, we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We behold the Son of David who shows us mercy. So here we are again, lifting up our eyes to the cross and being invited to the table of mercy. This is Jesus' table, and all who call on him as the true king of the world are welcome to receive right now, regardless of your church background or affiliation. If that doesn't describe you, your story, and where you're at, thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us on Sunday morning. We encourage you, keep coming back. Keep asking questions to God about Jesus. And if you are ready to begin to follow Jesus today, We invite you to join with us as we confess our sin and ask for forgiveness and mercy and trust in him yet again for salvation. Our corporate confession, the words will come up on the screen. Let's confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. Love it, it is my joy this morning to announce good news to you. Words that are true, not because I say them, but because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again this mercy of God. That Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. And this proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to a new life in Jesus, as you stand together, greet those around you, your brothers and sisters in the faith, and pass this peace to them.
And beloved, as we celebrate this peace, we also declare these truths, that Jesus is here. So lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right, all over the room. It is right to give you praise and thanks, God. It is right. It is right and it is good and it is a joyful thing to give thanks to you, our Father Almighty. You formed us in your image and you breathed your life into us. When our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. And it was on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death that our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of God's mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim together this mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. This table is a place of remembrance and a place of encounter. And so in this summer season, we're gonna sing together this invitation of the Spirit of come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit. 